Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about digital and uh, media production. And uh, our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today and all week, we are talking about what we want to spend a little more time on. <laughs> so what are we what are we actually going to cover uh, over the next uh, quarter or so? So we're going to be doing brainstorming. So if you've got ideas around audio, so it could be any parts of audio that you want us to put into the second hour, uh, throw those into Makana. Let us know what those things are. Vote on, vote on the ones that are already there and give us a sense of what that looks like. We're going to discuss that in uh, the second hour. So stay tuned for that. Um, and right now, let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Bill, what do we have? First one comes from Eric Price in Kansas City. And Eric says, the New York Times reported complaints of headaches in screenings of the new Avatar, blasting Cameron's choice to routinely shift between 24 and 48 frames per second in the movie. Wouldn't a single frame rate be a better view ex viewing experience and easier on the eyes or brain? Go ahead, Sky. What I observed when I saw uh, a, another film that was trying this experiment of faster frame rates than 24 was, A, because they could, it was the film Pacific Rim. And the director made a specific choice to to do it all at, I think it was 48. And uh, we've seen other um, films do this, but they were consistent. Why? I, what I do appreciate about Cameron, though, is he will use the technique of the tool to create the effect that he wants. And that's why I really appreciate him with the 3D concepts, because it moves the story forward inside of that. But I, I had not read this. I'm, I'm wondering if there is a, a, a knee jerk reaction to the stop fast, you know, slow, ultra clean, and then the traditional speed of 24. I, I haven't seen the movie yet because I, I'm very specific about seats that I want to sit in. <laughs> and, I, and, there's, and there's usually about 10 seats in a theater that I'm willing to sit in. And they've been, there's a lot of us that know what, where to sit. <laughs> so, so there's, so it's been hard to get a, get tickets for it. Um, I may be going to see it later this week. Uh, a lot of people that I've told, that I've talked to found it to be a bit disconcerting to have the frame rate changing, you know, during the show. Some people didn't notice it at all. And some people really, if you're, if you're sensitive to frame rate, you notice it. If you're not sensitive to frame rate, you don't notice it. That seems to be the, uh, and that's kind of like whether you're sensitive to motion sickness or <laughs> or food. You know, there's just, uh, it, it seems to be, it doesn't seem to be consistent, but there definitely are people who are bothered by it. I, uh, you know, if it was me, I'd be doing 120. <laughs> so so the uh, so the um, uh, the whole way through and, and called a day and people would have had a much different experience. Um, but the problem is, is there's not enough theaters to support that. I know that, that, Cameron has talked about higher frame rates, um, and uh, but there's only a handful of theaters that can that can do that frame rate right now. Go ahead, Courtney. I'm curious to know if it's uh, if whether the capture frame rate was different uh, between the some scenes and other scenes, and whether it's being projected at different frame rates throughout the film. If the projector is actually changing frame rates dynamically, that would be unusual, I would think, I, and would have to be carefully set up. From what I understand, it is all 48, and it's just that there's they're doubling frames on the 24s. That's my understanding of, of uh, how. So that's the, the original source 24 shows up in some places where it's doubled, but yeah. yeah. And so it, I think that that's actually. I don't think that they could have a projector that was constantly changing. I mean, they could in digital projection theoretically do that, but it seems like from a pipeline perspective that would be pretty painful. Go ahead, uh, yeah. Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, one more problem is a lot, if they're seeing it in, depends on whether they're seeing it in uh, 3D stereo, 3D or not. Sometimes projectionists <clears throat> mess up and they get the left eye and the right eye reversed. So that I read you an article left that left eye image in the right eye and a right eye image in the left eye. That screws up things. 
I read I read an article that I guess they when they were doing reviews, a lot of times they'd swap the eyes just to keep it fresh, you know, to have it do something different than what they expected. You know, go, Jason. I, I found myself mesmerized by, um, you know, seeing all the action. I, I think it was what uh, The Hobbit. That the last really major release, with which was 48 frames, um, being able to see all of that tiny little background action, I, I thought was spectacular. So I, I don't know, I, I, I notice it, but it's never bothered me. I think it's yeah. awesome. And I don't think that necessarily that um, that it's a, uh, you know, I think I think that I don't think that we're all going to move everything to 120 frames per second. I actually think film may stay at 24 for quite some time. Because it constantly tells you that it's not real. Like, it's like, it's not real, not real, not real. In the tests that we've done so far, what we find is that live events really love frame rate. You know, like, so 60 frames a second or or more. Um, live events really, really like to, you know, it make, feels more visceral. It feels like you're more there. Sports feel really good at high frame rates. Um, horror films uh, or clips um, are much worse at 100 i mean not like much more aggressive at 120 frames a second to the viewer than they were when they um but there's other things you can't do you can't like at 120 frames a second you can't move the camera very much because people a lot of people will get sick really fast because they're no their brain is no longer processing it as film it's processing it as a window and they get disoriented really fast so big jib shots and helicopter shots make make a lot of people pretty upset <laughs> you know, so they, they, i mean literally when the test you'll see people look look down they have to like regain their their uh their state of where they are um watching it so that's a that's a different challenge when it comes to filmmaking so we'll see but it, I, I think the frame rate shift I, I it seemed like a really odd choice but uh, I, i'm looking forward to seeing it before before it leaves the theaters just to see it for myself next question Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida, says for sim, uh, simulus as live play out of recorded contact, content, webinars, simulative co webinars, I guess, how do you keep your audience engaged? Go ahead, Jason. Um, you need to recognize that all of that time and energy and money that goes into a live production needs to be refocused on making something so compelling that you are um, that you are going to keep the audience's attention, make it more succinct and make it more interesting. Yeah, I think that one of the things that we've done in these kind of playouts is really focus a lot on chat and, and Q&A. So really push the audience to ask questions, to chat amongst themselves and really try to move that forward as you're going through it because that because there is an advantage if you're doing a simulive, there is an advantage or a premiere or a lot of, they call it a lot of different things. The, the reason you want to do that is you want everyone thinking about it at the same time. So how do you get that happening? And that, that can be polling, that can be chat, that can be Q&A. I don't really recommend doing it very much. Um, I don't think that it's a great experience for the for the user because you can't respond to them. But if you're going to do it, you know, chat and um, answering questions via text so people can ask questions while they're watching and have text going on. Um, other things that we've done is actually commentary channels where people can, depending on what you're watching Simulive, if there's some downtime, people will actually throw stuff in. Hey, this person asked this and this person asked this. And, and there's places that you can kind of cut live into a Simulive. So those are a couple different things to think about. Um, I don't, again, I I don't think it's a great experience um, for the user um, as a, the, you, you really need to have something like a concert or something really that's really entertaining to do a Simulive. If you're doing a webinar as a Simulive, um, the problem really is, is that as a user, the behavior that almost all users want is to be able to watch it faster. 
<laughs> or listen to it faster. You're, if you're talking, if you have a bunch of talking heads or you have people going through slides, what they want to be able to do is watch at 1.5, 1.7, 2.0, and just move through the data. So when you do a simulive, you're now forcing them to not have any interactivity and not be part of the show and also not be able to speed, th speed through it. Um, and, and some people want to do that. That's why they want to do Simulive, but I think it's not a great experience for the user. We don't see, when people do a lot of Simulives, we don't see a lot of returns. People, and this is, we're seeing the same thing with hybrids, um, where people will come, they'll do two or three of them, and then they just, the, the drop-off is pretty dramatic when, you come, when it comes to attendance. So the same people coming to over and over again. And we read that, um, that data as it's poor experience or experience that becomes not important to them. You know, and and that's and then it's almost impossible to get them back. <laughs> so, so you know, you have to be very careful about how you build these because you can burn your entire audience that you built up over years in a matter of event, you know, a handful of events. Uh, go ahead, Jeff. And to point out, you you can record in some of some of those interactive elements. In other words, you can record in as part of the pre-recording. You know, okay, now let's take you know a poll on this question, and and then of course tabulate the results live, but but those yeah. kind of cues can be part of that recording. But I th and I think Apple has almost spoiled or, or tainted the perception of this because of course they've switched all their quote unquote live keynotes to to pre-recorded uh, shows and they're much better uh, and also we can absorb them faster to Alex's point. Yeah, and, and the the issue with when Apple goes live, what's distinct is A, they spent millions and millions and millions of dollars on that production, as much more than you would spend on a normal TV show that length. <laughs> you know, so 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 it's so there's an enormous amount of money that was spent. The production is much higher than any stage event that anybody can do, including Apple. The the information, what you want to look at there is it's not a webinar. It's not people just talking about something. It's highly produced. There's animations, there's all these other things. So if you're gonna do something that someone has to watch. It really has to be have be have dense con, con, you know content density, and Apple's really good at that. Um, like for instance, their um, their sessions now that for WWDC, the pre-recorded sessions, not even the keynotes, but the pre-recorded sessions, are at least five times better than they ever were, and I've seen a lot of them <laughs> on stage. Uh, on stage, you had someone who was nervous, who doesn't do this all the time, trying to work through it, having little errors, having all these other things going very slowly. Um, in the pre-recorded versions, it was it's much better, but they're not. The keynote is all at one time because that is news. You know, there's three reasons to go live. One is news, two is um, uh, sports, and three is interactivity. And if you don't have one of those three, if you're not breaking something new that is really important that people really think is news, you're not doing a sport or you're not doing interactivity. You probably shouldn't be going live at all. You just post it up there. Now, the other thing to think about is people then. Well, how do I get this information out? The best thing to do, in my opinion, is to put the the content out first, and then do Q and A's and discussion sessions with your audience as the live portion. Let them watch that stuff, and and then and then actually go through it. And you'll find that I think that most people have a much better experience that way. Next question. Next one comes to us from Jacob Goodnight in Indianapolis. He says, "Has anyone tried the Stellar X three? How does it compare to the Stellar X two? Good, Courtney. I have not tried it. I'm still on the Stellar X2. As far as feature-wise, it looks like it's pretty much the same hand-tuned condenser. One thing that's different that it shows on the website is it does have a switchable minus 10 dB pad and a, uh, a high-pass filter so you could roll off some of the low-end 
uh, because it tends to get a little boomy on the low end uh, if you get very close to it for the proximity effect. They said they improved the shock mount too, which is not really part of the microphone. So, uh, you know, the shock mount may help those X2 members out there. But uh, yeah. the, uh, uh, and as far as the minus 10 dB pad, some, you know, if you're using a vintage console that has uh, input transformers on it, that can be important because some of these uh, higher output condenser microphones can saturate the, the input winding on those transformers. So you need to pad it down a little bit to avoid saturation of the input transformers. But uh, most of the, uh, you know, uh, newer preamps can handle that type of uh, output without the pad. Next question. Tim uh, Buchan in Columbus, Ohio says, when setting up for shows or facilities, I rarely hear mention of patch panels anymore. It seems people are sending signals, audio, video, straight into routers and IOs. What are the panelists' thoughts on patch panels or patch bays, and when are they needed? Good morning. Patch panels are uh, were a wonderful thing and, and still are, but they are a lot of work to install and they need to be maintained pretty well because they can oxidize. Uh, you have to have your patch cords, uh, patch cord connectors clean quite often and you know that can be a chore to do. Uh, whereas electronic patch paneling like routers and uh, matrices and stuff um, require very little maintenance. Yeah, go ahead, Jason. Just in practice, a patch panel quadruples the number of connections. So if this gold thing is the patch panel, you're taking an unbroken connection, right? And going one, two, three, four. You're quadrupling the number of analog connections. So uh, the number of points of failure in any analog rig, um, probably a headache you don't want. Go ahead, Mitchell. Uh, J Jason, there may be a punch block on the back, so would an uh, eliminate one of those connections, but I agree with you. I think it's a mechanical uh, failure point, having a tip ring and sleeve, whether it's uh, um, normal through. Uh, the, the modern way to do it, and the other problem with the old analog patch panels were you needed uh, distribution amplifiers if you wanted to multiply outputs. A router, on the other hand, can do that automatically and digitally. So all you need is uh, an input and an output, and it can be replicated across as many places as it needs to be. Good, Tom. Well, I'll use uh, patch panels for my Ethernet connections. Uh, for audio or video, it's definitely better to go the router direction. Yeah, we use a mixture of both. So we have a bunch of routers, and then we have a lot of patch panels, um, mostly not so much in audio, but in definitely in video. Um, but uh, but the, the main thing about that is that, A, we have a very analog. We cannot pro We cannot program around certain things going out. So for... For instance, when we use them with audio and we use them with video, we have pins. I don't use normal um, patch panels, so I use non-normal. So if I pull a pin out, it means nothing's going out. <laughs> like, like, you know, like, like it doesn't matter what you do with the mixer, doesn't matter what you do with the switcher, nothing is going to go out to the outside world. And we have these red pins oftentimes. You just pull those out, and we know that, you know, in, in an event that, that we've now severed ourselves from the outside world, and no one can make a mistake um, in that area. So that's useful. Also, it expands your router. So a lot of times, if you look at a broadcast truck, both for audio and video, they have a router that is a certain size, and then they have patch panels that that basically allow them to reroute things as needed, um, not during a show, but you have lots and lots of options in a studio or lots and lots of options of things that can be brought in and out. Buying routers that let you do all of that is really expensive. The route, the patch panels are relatively inexpensive, and and so it allows you to to kind of 
I, you know, right now I have all these instruments going into this thing, but I might want to add, take these ones out and put something else in. And I have a router that's a certain size. And those are the things that we have to think about. Now, Dante, of course, changes a lot of this stuff for audio. But for video, we still have this issue where we want to route things and keep them. You know, I have 40, let's say I have 40 by 40 router. I only have 40 ins and 40 outs, but I have maybe 80 things that might want to go in and 60 things that might want to go out. I don't need them all at one time, but I do need to be able to patch them into the into the system. So there are reasons to have these patch panels. Again, I don't, some people do have patch panels that'll pass one signal if they're left open and then you push something in and it takes over. I don't like that because I like it to be, um, <laughs> I like to be able to know that I'd rather have a, a cable going from one to the other to tell me that there's something going there um, than, than not. Again, Mitchell, real quick. Yeah, the uh, the automated routers also do recall, which is a lot faster than trying to repatch a uh, analog mm-hmm. patch bay. It is. It is. Uh, again, it's um, I, we find that useful. It's useful to have a mixture of both. The other thing is we can still get a show done if with with just the patches. If the router goes down, we can still repatch. And I've actually had a truck that had to be re had to be analog patched through the patch panel to get the show out the door because the router went the the Harris router went down. So, so, so I, I have a strong respect. That's when I really learned to love patch panels is that we were able to get signal out of the truck um, without the router at all. Um, next question. Craig Kadoki in Toronto, Canada says the ATEM mini SDI has two SDI outputs. Can one of these be an aux out just passing one input back out while the other is program or is one output always a multi-view? Go ahead, Tom. Absolutely. You can put anything into an output, any input, program, preview, multi-view, your color generators and keys. The easiest way to control this is with the MixFX app or MixEffect app by Adam Tao. Yeah, and and the SDI ones, they don't care what, at least I have the larger one, I have the extreme and it has four outputs and they're completely random. Like they, they, you can put anything out that you want from those. Uh, next question. Andy Kokendorfer, Vieira, Florida is up next. Any advice recording from with Riverside FM? I'm planning on uh, recording a panel discussion considering the quality for mobile devices. Should I recommend mobile over desktop for the recording? Thanks. Uh, go ahead, Jason. My immediate thought would be um, audio hijack. This is the easiest possible way to just tap this and and, and record it. Well, well theoretically, Riverside is going to record locally on all of those devices. Um I haven't used it with mobile. Uh, I haven't used it for a little while. There's a there's an issue with Riverside, and I don't know if it still exists, but there was an issue that when we first tested it, that if you weren't paying for the higher end version, you got this cropped preview, and you didn't you weren't actually seeing what what it was fully recording, and that was uh, um, a bummer. And so so we stopped using it. We tested it, and then immediately didn't want to use it. So I have not done an invent with it because of that problem. So test that to make sure that you're not getting that kind of wider aperture on your record. Um, but it should be able to, um, you know, it, it. I would say that the desktop would make me feel a lot better than recording on a mobile device. Um, but it depends on what, and, and again, hopefully we'll have someone tomorrow or another day that actually does Riverside. But um, but that's been the problem. I also think that if you're doing it right now, that makes sense. Uh, remember that um, in October, Zoom basically said they're going to do the same thing. <laughs> you know, so so that you know, so that you're probably if you're planning something that's going to happen in May or June, uh, you may not need Riverside. Um, you know, for that for that process. Next question. Next question. James Babbitt in San Diego is up next. Steve Gibson on Security Now discussed the failure of LastPass. What do you recommend instead of LastPass? Maybe the Apple built-in password manager? Go ahead, Jeff. I'll reiterate, and 
and, One and oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, you got to watch on the back end where which Jeff I'm talking about. <laughs> so Jeff Francis. Sorry, Oops, sorry. That's all right. I've used uh, One Password for quite some time, and I'm actually switching over to the Apple built-in password manager mainly because I'm not a fan of uh, subscription services. Uh, but you have to be all in on the Apple ecosystem to do that. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, absolutely true. And, and I'll reiterate. You know, it, it's funny that um, to to take you know, Steve's reporting of it, but not his advice, which I'll summarize, which is, you know, if you understand how this stuff works and, and LastPass and, and really probably the others, um, and you've done the right thing, which is primarily you've used a really good, strong master password for LastPass. Uh, so far, all the evidence points to the fact that none of your information is accessible by any of the bad guys. You know, they have all of your a blob of data that they may or may not have retrieved, but it's encrypted and they don't have access to it. And if you used a good password, it'll take them years to get into it. Now, maybe a couple of years from now, they'll be able to break into it. And, and so any system that stores your information in the cloud in the best case scenario will use the same model. Apple still has... Uh, you know, they're a company that, that has fought um, subpoenas before, and who knows if that changes, and, and it's a little trickier. And, and, and like Jeff mentioned, you have to be all in on Apple. Go ahead, Mitchell. Post-it notes. That's a horrible They idea. work great. <laughs> all right. Let's, let's tighten it up a little bit. All right, Courtney. I haven't used a password manager in years. I, I write down the important passwords and hide them somewhere. But but what I use uh, on my PC is I let Google, for for the browser, I let Google manage my passwords, which I create the passwords, but it manages enter, automatically entering them so I don't have to recall them all the time. And on my phone, I have the Samsung password manager, which is great because it can use a biometric login. It asks you to put your thumb on the uh, on the fingerprint sensor to sign in to any of those websites that require authentication or a, or a password to sign in, and it stores it, so all I have to do is stick my thumb on it and don't have to remember anything. Good, Marty. Yeah, I tried LastPass and, and didn't care for it. What I, what I have been using is a Firefox uh, browser has a really good password manager. Um, the file is stored encrypted on your own computer, and that browser along with all the passwords and my bookmarks are available on all my devices. And while the password manager only works within the browser, um, I do store passwords for applications in there as well. So if I need to um, log into an application that's not browser-based, I will go into the browser, look up the password, copy and paste it. Yeah, the uh, I it's... For me, the big problem is is that I use Chrome primarily. <laughs> so, so that's I mean I'm, I'm generally a Chrome user, and so I uh, this it's mostly going to Safari that would keep me out of the you know I don't just don't like Safari as much. Um, and so the um, uh, but I will say if you're an Apple user, I'm theoretically I'm starting to get close to switching over to Safari just to go to the Apple password manager because in every other part of your Apple ex experience, it's better. <laughs> like just, it, just the password process is so good um, that I'm thinking about moving back to Safari as my primary browser because of that. Uh, I've used LastPass since 2010 or 11, so it's, it's really hard for me to think about what I would have to do to extract myself from that, but I, but I am considering it as well. But if, if I go to something, it'll probably be just going to the Apple ecosystem. Uh, next question. 
Stefan Fischer, Wurzburg, Germany. How do microphones create or pick up different polar patterns? Go ahead, Jeff. So the first thing to remember is that uh, we're very used to video zoom lenses and microphones do not have the kind of specificity that a zoom lens does. So you can look through a telescope and the moon will fill the entire screen. Microphones don't get that kind of selectivity, uh, at least not yet. So the primary way they do it is by allowing sound into the back of the microphone. So a microphone diaphragm, imagine a drum head. That's the thing that moves when sound hits it and it turns into electricity. If we allow sound into the back, we can control the polar pattern. If we don't allow sound into the back, it will pick up sound from all directions. So if you look on the back of your pencil condensers or microphones, there's ways, there's sound ports that sound can get into the back and that shapes that. Uh, shotgun microphones, interference tube microphones are a little bit different because they add a long tube on the front with slots that uh, cancels out sound from off axis, off to the side. And then there's another type that uses a two diaphragm. So it basically has two drum heads back to back. And those are configured uh, electronically to change polar pattern. Good, Marty. Yeah, that's that's exactly right, Jeff. And and so what happens is is the design, the physical design of the microphone capsule and the body around it has chambers in, in the back. And so it carefully mixes in a certain percentage of sound uh, that come from a different direction or uh, from off axis, uh, a different percentage of sound through the back and through the front, which uh, creates a phase difference. If you go back a few weeks to our second hour on microphone phase, uh, you'll see a lot of this information. And yes, some, some microphones have dual uh, diaphragms and that are in opposite polarity. And they mix those together in such a way that it creates a specific polar pattern, uh, whether it be a cardioid, a subcardioid, which is wider, uh, a line uh, line microphone, which is also a shotgun microphone, uh, or omnidirectional, or anywhere in between. And some microphones are continuously variable. Um, what is there's one that is continuously variable. It's not a video production microphone it's more for conference rooms um but it but uh microphones like that are out there go ahead andrew yeah and the other thing to think about is pattern when you're evaluating microphones and you know so you got omni cardioid supercardioid and hypercardioid in various ways um and you'll see the phase ports on the side and you'll know it's a directional mic usually because sometimes those those uh, those things are cosmetic only. I've run into that on some cheaper microphones. But one thing to do when evaluating microphones that I learned a long time ago from a, a great mentor is he just did this. So, you know, pick up your microphone, plug it in, talk into it, and you just talk and move around the side of the microphone. Another way to do this is actually to play pink noise through a speaker. Point the microphone at it and then gradually rotated. I don't know if you guys did this on your microphone evaluations, but uh, that's a great way to really understand the pickup pattern and whether that particular mic, because um, off-axis quality varies greatly between microphones. And a lot of it's it's usually associated with price, not always. There's some really good inexpensive mics that have great off-axis rejection. But anyway, that's a good way to, you know, evaluate mics. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. 
Yeah, uh, you mentioned an important, Andrew mentioned an important part because um, using a slot-based or, or port-based uh, to change the polar pattern uh, is not the same at all frequencies. So sometimes high frequencies can be more narrow, narrow in the polar pattern, but as you go down and lower frequencies can be more omnidirectional. So if you look at, at the uh, polar pattern here, let's see, of a, uh, of a 416 here, you can see the... Uh, uh, high frequency is the little squiggly line here, and, and these are the lower frequencies as you go around the outside edge. And so um, uh, much lower frequencies over here uh, are, are much broader, so you can really, it gets colored as, as you, the sound becomes colored. It changes frequency as you move off axis, so that's a consideration. So always look at the polar pattern of plot of that microphone to see how smooth it'll be if you're not dead on center. Uh, if you go off slightly, you might hear the high frequencies drop off first, but the sound level will be the same. Next question. Next one comes to us from Andy Korkendorfer in Vieira, Florida again. Is it okay to run Zoom ISO on Mac OS Ventura? Are there any reported issues? Thanks. No reported issues. It's working just fine. Yeah, so you shouldn't have any problem with it on Ventura. Next question. Jesse Kester in Glendale. Uh, and he says, we plugged our two SM7Bs into our Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera 4Ks and found ourselves listening to an enthusiastic Spanish news broadcast. Hmm. Any words of wisdom on what's going on? Moreover, how can we fix it? Go ahead, Courtney. Well, this is known as rectification, which happens uh, uh, if you're in the in the field of a very strong, usually an AM radio station will be more than an FM radio station will cause this interference. And anything that has an amplifier in it can uh, rectify that, uh, basically tune that uh, RF signal and feed it into your audio amplifier. And it comes into the... Uh, uh, the usually a preamp it'll come in over a wire the microphone wire or you're dealing with uh, uh, dynamic mics those are nice little coils in there which make great little pickups for AM radio signals and feed it into your preamp where it's rectified and tuned so uh, Faraday cage is uh, use good uh, good cables it can also come in over the microphone cables so use canary star quad which tends to suppress more external uh, RF coming in. Uh, other than that, build a Faraday cage around your studio if you're next to a transmitter site. Go ahead, Marty. Yeah, the, the first thing I would look at is the wiring you're using between the microphone and the mixer. Um, you want to make sure that the wire is grounded to the shell at both ends, or at least to pin one on both ends, and that it has a high percentage of shielding. So um, uh, some less expensive wire has braided shielding with say if you look at the specs it'll say a percentage of coverage so you want to look with for something that is, has at least 90 percent shielding coverage um or foil foil would be a hundred percent like the building wires um yes and star quad would be uh, a layer of protection above shielding because the uh the, wire, the two pairs of wires are opposite each other, and they will help cancel things out even more. If you're still getting a problem, then uh, I would look at the input to the Blackmagic uh, device. Uh, there may be an issue there uh, with uh, shielding of the cabinet, which has been a problem. Uh, the radio can get into the unit rather than through the wire, through the connector, and directly through the cabinet into the preamp. So those are... 
some things to look at. Go ahead, Jason. First things first, disconnect the power from the camera, let it run on battery and make sure that that's not making it worse. Next, get the preamp. And uh, the way that I read this question, there was no mixer in the middle. The The camera was the mixer. And yes, that camera actually can power um, a um, an SM7B. Um, I'll remind you that... Uh, Getting the preamp is as close to the mic as possible, and trying to uh, make it digital is probably the best way to go. Even Dante um, might be an option, but yeah, it's going to be a yeah. tough one. Star quad cable, one hundred percent. Yeah, you might want to think about. I mean, like what? How? If I was going to do something regularly, wh wherever that is, I would definitely think about like something like an MM1 that is really, really close to a sound device's MM1 that's really, really close to the mic, and then just plug it right into get it into Dante as fast as it can. It's just a big antenna. I used to DJ weddings a long time ago at Lookout Mountain in Colorado, and there's a big radio tower that's right behind the event center. Um, probably not healthy to be up there all the time. I'm glad I didn't have to work too often there because literally I could just I just picked up stations when I turned it on. And how I took it is I went through a whole roll of aluminum foil every show that I did there because I would wrap my entire back, the back of my my kit with aluminum foil, wrap the cables that, that went to it. The only thing that wasn't wrapped is what went out to the speakers that people could see, and that seemed to work okay. But uh, it was, otherwise I'd pick up multiple stations depending on how I moved the wire. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, Alex just mentioned something I was going to suggest, because that Blackmagic Pocket Cinema camera may have a plastic case on it, so it may not be very well shielded from the outside. So if you get a yeah. mixer, make sure it's in a metal case so that's grounded, uh, or cover it with tinfoil, as Alex did. <laughs> Try tinfoil. See what it works. Come back and tell us if the tinfoil worked. I ra Talk about tinfoil hats. You know, I put a tinfoil hat Be sure hat on to my... put some on your head, too, just yeah, for fun. Yeah, yeah go ahead, Jesse. And when you're saying rapid and tinfoil, you mean just like treat it like a baked potato, the, the cable? Like a baked the... potato. Just try it. Wrap, just wrap the, the camera first, then wrap the cable, and just see what happens. Like, does that work? And then that'll tell you, it'll at least tell you what's happening um, to start with. So and let, and then come back tomorrow and let us know. All right. Or whenever after you've done it. Next question. And bring pictures. Guy Cochran's up next from Seattle, Washington. And he says, any consumer electronics show in news that's happening in Vegas right now? Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, this is what we call a long-distance Cochran. Uh, we were talking to him last night on After Hours, and he mentioned two big uh, uh, shows they're going on, uh, or, or special announcements, Panasonic and Sony. Both are announcing something. We don't know anything about it. But in general, um, he has asked us to discord him if any targeted items we'd like looked at, like, for example, Live 360 with an HDMI connector, uh, any of those things, uh, he'll report back at some point. That sounds great. Um, one of the big things that I saw in the news was that uh, Sony is actually not doing their announcement at CES. They're doing it as a live stream uh, today. I think it's at like 5 o'clock uh, Eastern Standard. So uh, they're going to do the announcement. This is a That's the kind of thing that makes uh, conferences... Uh, the people who develop the conferences, it makes them stay up at night. When Sony says, I don't want to, I don't need to be there to do the announcement. I can do a video instead and do a press press conference without. Um, so we want to watch that, but that's a, that's a very scary trend for a CES um, for a company that it's a lot, a lot of smaller companies are, have been doing that. Um, but uh, Sony doing it is a pretty, pretty big deal. Um, next question. 
Scott Mueller in Germantown, New York. Recommendations for an Omni mic hung above a kitchen-sized table out of the shot for dialogue capture for people sitting around it having a conversation. Or perhaps a few smaller Omni plant mics hidden on the table. He wonders which of those approaches may be bust. His budget is around 200 U.S. dollars. Go ahead, Courtney. Well, hanging's great if you can get it fairly close, if it's a fairly tight shot. Um, and you can get it out in front of the people. Make sure you don't hang it directly above their heads because that's out of the sound pattern of most speech. Uh, and for that price, uh, you're going to have a problem. Uh, you know, maybe the Behringer uh, Bigfoot or the Yeti Blue Yeti uh, within their bipolar pickup uh, pattern might work for two people on either sides of the table. A couple of those configured either on the table or hanging above uh, as long as they're within about two or three feet from each of the people on either side of the table might work for you in that price range. Go, Jeff. I'm going to tell you about a little company on the uh, Carolina coast, North Carolina, and it's called Nayant. And I'll put a link in there. And he uh, hand builds microphones from tiny omnidirectional capsules and wires them for uh, either wireless packs or direct for plug-in power. But he also makes an XLR version, so you can get an Omni with an extended lead to an XLR for $59. And they sound surprisingly decent because uh, all the smarts is in the capsule, and he just buys Panasonic capsules that are pretty decent. Good morning. I would have a concern about using an omnidirectional microphone in that situation because it's going to pick up every little sound and every little creak and every little foot movement in the in the studio. Um, I would, uh, if if you have people three hundred and sixty degrees around the table, well, um, you know, I would I would maybe use a, a, a figure eight microphone or maybe two figure eight microphones. Um, Unless you're using something like Noise Assist or some other noise reduction processing, uh, it's it's just going to not sound very present. It's going to sound very um, open and dull. <clears throat> so I, I would rethink that uh, rethink that strategy. Next question. Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York says, "Morning, guys. I know it depends on your voice, but when would you recommend the?" Electrovoice RE20 over the Electrovoice RE27. Looking at two talents here, a male voice that is mid-low in range and a female, which is mid-high. Thanks. Good. Mitchell? Um, I partnered up with RE20s way back in the 70s at major radio stations. A great microphone for a male voice. Um, it's uh, got great off-channel off uh, rejection. Uh, not off-channel. You can move around it a lot. No proximity. Um uh, problems and the RA27 came along later, more powerful magnet, a neodymium microphone, probably a little bit better high frequency response. So you could use that with the uh, the female voice. Uh, go ahead, Jason. Um, I'll take an extreme stance here. I'm racking my brain and I can think of no scenario where you'd want to use an RE20 versus an RE27 based on mm. your constraints. Interesting, because <laughs> I, I was going to I thought you were going to go the other direction. <laughs> go ahead, Jeff. Th that I have to chime in. I mean, it really does depend on on what your application is. Uh, is it live? I mean, the RE twenty is going to be, uh, you know, theoretically that flatter, more neutral sound, um, which lets you, based on equipment and or post processing, 
EQ to get it where you want, but, you know, potentially more flexible, especially since you're talking about, you know, you definitely have a male voice and a female voice. They're going to be different. Um, and like Mitch pointed out, the RE27 is probably, you know, leans to the brighter side of, of the spectrum. Good morning. Yeah, the 27 has a wider frequency response, so better high end. It has um, a stronger output level by uh, a full volt, and uh, and it has filter switches for, for tailoring the frequency response of the microphone. So it might be a more flexible option all around. Rental on those mics is pretty low. I don't know exactly what it is, but it's probably like 50 bucks a day. I would rent uh, two of each, and then I would just uh, stick them in there and try to figure it out. Uh, and then once you've done it once, then you know which one works better for each voice. But if when in doubt, just, you know, just start spreading, spreading it down the field. Um, you know, the, the uh, but I, a lot of times we rent when we have people we don't, haven't worked with in the past, we'll rent two or three different mics for each, you know, like for each person. And we're just going to kind of go in there and figure it all out. If you can afford to do that, I wouldn't buy the mics. I just rent them. They're a lot, again, they're not, I don't know what the number is, but they're probably less than 50 bucks a day to rent them. And then you only need to do it once because once you figure it out, you, um, you know. So that's, the, that's what you want to kind of think about if you haven't worked with someone before. Next question. Scott Mueller in Germantown, New York. Anyone else having issues with YouTube stalling and wheel spinning on the M1 Mac Studio? The only way to recover is to quit and restart Chrome. A pop-up came up one time, and it was basically Google blaming the ISP. I have a 500 by 500 fiber connection. What's going on? Go ahead, Serge. I, there's multiple points in that question. Um, I'm going to concentrate on the 500 speed uh, of the internet connection. By the way, it's depending of your ISP and depending of how you are connected internally with your LAN. Is it Wi-Fi? Is it LAN, uh, Ethernet? Uh, and by the way, also, when you do a speed test, um, be sure to test with the single connection at the bottom of the, the speed test right here because multi-thread connection will maximize your connection but a single thread will show you the speed that you ISP will give you on a single connection to uh, to Google. There you go, Jeff. Yeah, uh, you know, the one of the keywords that stood out is on Chrome. A and so you would think, hey, that's made by Google. Google makes YouTube, but you're on a Mac. So, you know, to Alex's quandary, which one to go back to, you know, nothing is going to beat uh, Safari in terms of performance and integration with the OS on a Mac, and it's going to be very efficient. Now, sometimes to your detriment, it may pause things you don't want it to, but, you know, I would at least as an experiment, try running it on Safari for a while and see if you get those same problems. If you do, now you're maybe pointing to some other factor like speed or latency or, or anything like that. But, but if, and especially look at if something changed, you know, has that always happened on that machine? But I would at least try Safari for a couple of days, see what happens. Go ahead, Courtney. I've noticed this recently, and I don't have an M1 Mac, but I've been uh, watching YouTube recently uh, during the holidays uh, on Fire Stick or Roku or other streaming devices. I've seen this problem pop up many times, and I think what's happening is a lot. I look at what I'm looking at, and a lot of bloggers and YouTube uh, streamers are now streaming in 4K60, which is a lot of bandwidth. And I think YouTube is choking. If a lot of people are watching that particular stream 
at 4K 60. I switch down to 1080p and it can handle it. Uh, and I find that stream less con congested and it doesn't buffer or stop or freeze. But, you know, YouTube has lots of bandwidth and they can throw lots of bandwidth at it. But, you know, maybe their management during the holidays, so many people are hitting it that it just becomes overwhelmed. It might be. I, I will find that a lot of computers can't handle 4K. So they, they just start getting all chunky um, when they when they do it. Um, but the so a lot of computers can't can't sort that out. Um, so it, it's probably not YouTube's bandwidth management, but it is probably a 4K solution there. Uh, I have seen this recently and I don't know why. Next question. Greg Gibson in Washington, D.C. is up next watching a Shark Tank rerun. I saw a pitch from Wedfully, a company that remotely live streams weddings using phones, tablets, and or laptops. They got $200,000 from Robert for a 10% equity investment. Curious if the panel has heard of this company or has any thoughts about it. Code Sky. I do have thoughts. I went to the website. It's a very efficient website. And I'm thinking if I were creating a wedding situation, I would want, again, what's the what's it cost? And I don't really care about the equipment. Do you provide a good service? And so what it looks like on the website, yes, it is a production company specializing in weddings. And there's there's money to be made there. A lot of people have started their careers there and and continue to make a, a, a good living. What I was impressed with was they do have a base rate that they start and then they'll do the add-on things. But consistently, they do say they have professional crew. And so that whatever equipment they do bring in, they do, and they do have different levels, they have humans that are trained and know how to make that happen. Because at the end of the day, if you're doing both in-person or remote or a hybrid, you want the the tool to work to the, the, the audience wherever they are. And so if they've got people that are doing that, seems like a good service. Yeah, I think that I wouldn't want my, my only my wedding day to be shot with a phone. <laughs> like, like I wouldn't, I would not pay someone to do that, I guess is what I would say. So, so that's the, I think that, the, I think it's a hard sell. I think that uh, oftentimes I see Shark Tank when they invest in things that I know, I go, well, they didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> like, you know, like they, you know, that, that's a, that's someone who knows about money, doesn't know about the industry that they're actually investing in, which is kind of common for some, some venture folks. So, so the, uh, it feels like as a guess, I, I, I'd be surprised if this actually works very well because you don't need to do as a phone anymore. There's plenty of professional cameras at 2000 bucks. You know, it just doesn't, doesn't make as much sense. Um, next question. Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia, using DaVinci Resolve to cut clips for social media. One timeline is for 60-second YouTube shorts, and another is for TikTok. All clips are arranged on one track. Is there a way to tell how long a clip is after selecting it? I don't think so. Um, the I, I think I would just be looking at it on the timeline, but I don't know of any way that it's going to show you what that is, but I'd look at it. I What I tend to do is just go from one side of the clip to the other. And just, if it's not in the start and finish, I just I just do the math in my head really quickly <laughs> to figure out roughly what it is. Um, I'm curious why you're doing a different one for YouTube shorts and TikTok, even given that they're the same format. So I'd be really curious what the, the next time you're on the panel, I'd love to know what the decision process is there. Next question. Ronnie Hossey uh, in Trump's in Norway says, how much ambient sound should in-ears for multi-hour Zoom meetings be blocking out? Everything or less? Is the panel using custom-molded in-ears or off-the-shelf products? Good, Marty. I'm using an off-the-shelf product. And for this application in this environment, I don't, I'm not really concerned about blocking out ambient sound because it's a fairly quiet, relatively quiet environment. But if I were a musician on stage, if I were an announcer at a stadium, 
uh, where the ambient noise is really loud, then I would want to choose my in-ears for the reason of blocking out ambient sound. And so, you know, in this application, being able to hear some things mm-hmm. around me directly through my ears is fine. Good, Mitchell. Yeah, I'm with Marty. I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I'm new to inner ear monitors uh, on office hours. These headphones like any other radio DJ. And uh, my Shure 215s block out most, not all. And Mickey had suggested I get these Compli foam inserts. And they do an even better job of getting a better seal around them, even though you see that I don't have them all the way in. But um, it's a good balance of being able to hear stuff going on around me and being able to hear perfectly what's going on in office hours. Go, Jason. This is like asking, uh, do you want closed or open back headphones? Sure, there are really good reasons to use each in specific scenarios. Um, these are the um, the Shure 840, or SE846s. I think they block natively, depending on the tip, at 37 decibels, and that's way more than you need for something like this. But really, it's just to taste. Good, Bill. And I want as much open room as I can on the smallest thing, so I use these little security headphone things, and they're just very, very, very tiny. They uh, just loosely fit in the ear. I can still hear voices perfectly. I wouldn't use them for music. Uh, Next question. Next one comes to us from Tommy Shantz in St. Paul, Minnesota. Mixing audio for a live web broadcast remotely is proven. Is it possible to mix the venue for a live performance via remote? Uh, Go ahead, uh, Andrew. Andy? Can't hear you. Yes, no, and maybe is the answer to that one. Uh, depends on what you're trying to achieve. Um, for, you know, if it's the only way I can think of it, it that you would be successful if you did it remotely would be for like for a corporate event, like a breakout room, for example, it's usually a low maintenance kind of thing. And a lot of times those are unmanned or womaned in terms of their audio systems and someone's walking around and, Mm-hmm. You could probably mix that remotely, but the problem is you don't have ears in the room. Right. You need someone with ears in the room. Um, you need to put yourself in the place of the audience. That's what an audio, an audio engineer does. They sit there and they listen and they, uh, the good ones will, you know, evaluate on, mm-hmm. on in real time. What is the audience experience um, for music? Um, no. <laughs> uh, although I've seen it tried. And it's failed. And that is because the decisions that you need to make in real time with musicians on stage for their uh, needs and the audience um, happen very quickly. And you also have to anticipate things. That's really hard to do when you're not in the room. Mm -hmm. Marty? Is it possible? Yes. Is it a good idea? As Andy said, under very limited situations, I can't tell you how many churches and even university theaters I've been in where the mixing board is in the, in a booth behind a plate glass window with a pair of speakers, little tiny little speakers set up in there for the, you know, to listen to. Or maybe there's there's a hole about this big in the in the wall uh, in front of you for you to listen through. And, you know, that's just a lens that changes everything. And mm-hmm. you, you just can't hear what you're doing. You can't hear what the audience is doing. In so general. if you're if you're only like adjusting levels and don't need to be worrying about EQ and dynamics, you know, for speech only, yeah, it, it may be possible. 
I'd ra- I think in general, I would agree that you want to be in the room. I think that I would rather have a highly skilled uh, uh, mixing engineer uh, remotely than a low skilled mixing engineer in the room. <laughs> so, so I think that that's so I think that that's kind of the the, the, the trade off there. Uh, next question. Eric Price in Kansas City says interesting results reported on DeepMind taking on medical questions. Could Google be moving closer to making their own AI tech more widely accessible given open AIs and others reception? Go ahead, Courtney. They could. However, medical questions uh, a little bit different than other, you know, asking DeepMind to, you know, judge your choice of partner or whatever, uh, because it, it could be a life or death situation if you base your uh, result, you know, if you base your actions based on the results of a medical question. Uh, but think about it. It's like, uh, you know, AI answering uh, a medical question is like having, you know, 100,000 doctors consult and then come up with a consensus. And many times doctors come up with different consensus. So it has to do a weighting of which one is better, et cetera. So diagnosis is pretty good response. Whether they'll do it or not depends on the legal disclaimers that they have to make and that you have to sign before you take any medical advice. You know, there's a lot of lawyers involved in that. Google and, and others, Microsoft and others, have, have been really staying back because they're afraid they'll scare everybody. Um, they can do at least what AI, OpenAI can do. Uh, they've been working on it for a very long time. They just don't turn it on because they're they're afraid that people won't use their other services because they're afraid that these services are being activated. So so it's it is uh, they're gonna they're letting uh, the current smaller companies you know take a lot of the heat right now, but they'll follow up once things start to settle down. Next question. Craig Gibson in Washington, D.C. Did anyone see Monday night football? A player suffered cardiac arrest and was given CPR on the field, including the use of a defibrillator. Curious how everyone thought ESPN handled the tragic situation. I actually thought they did a pretty good job. You know, I I watched it. I was watching live when that happened, and I thought that they did a pretty good job of, you know, no one's ever seen this before. <laughs> so they're making stuff up. They had to run people. They obviously had to run people into a studio to start talking. They had to, you know, figure out what to do, talk on, deal with a situation that was unknown. Um, so I think that, I think that they, I would say that they did a, a pretty, a pretty good job as someone who's worked in a lot of events like that. And when you have something like that happen, you're now all just kind of trying to put a backup in um, to make that work. And I think that they, you know, it was good that they didn't show the, the hit over and over and over again. It, it's good that they, um, that they, once, once they realized how serious it was, and I think that they just gave us the information that they had as they had it. Bill, real quick. I would agree with that assessment. I noticed that they were trying to do a little PR spinning in the later part of it, but they, mm-hmm. they got the most important thing right, which is pay attention to the human being that is obviously hurt and try to help everybody feel at least as, knowledgeable as they can about the fact that we don't know what's going on. Hard, and, hard gig. And people will complain a lot about the number of commercials. Commercials give you a time to give you a time to think. <laughs> like, you know, so you run the commercials. It does mean that they got a lot of their guaranteed uh, commercials out of the way because they didn't know if the show was going to keep going. So that, that helps them. But the big thing is, is that when you get a commercial, it lets everybody go, okay, now what are we going to do here rather than trying to figure it out while you're running live? So I think that they were trying to take lots of breaths as they figured out what what was going on. Um, next question. Henry Ramos, Yonkers, New York. What's the Sony Sphere satellite project? Something about users being able to take photos from space. I noticed it was part of yesterday's SpaceX launch. I don't know. But that sounds amazing. <laughs> so uh, we'll have to do more research on it. The Sony Sphere satellite project. Okay, yeah. Well, it's, uh, photogrammetry from all those little satellites would be 
uh, a lot of fun. I had a friend one time doing photogrammetry and he asked, can you, can you do photogrammetry from a 70,000 millimeter lens? <laughs> he was like, no, who has that? He, Never mind. So, so it'd be, it'd be fun to do. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael. I remember seeing cheap trick in the front of house engineer had uh, the input uh, for the guitar synth, even though there was no keyboard player on Sage. How well do those units work? I've heard they can be glitchy depending on how you play. Marty, real quick. Well, I remember seeing Carl Palmer's ELP experience, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and there were no keyboards on stage. Um, all of the uh, Emerson, Keith Emerson's synthesizer parts were played by a guitar and um, sounded great. Good. Andy? Oh, I'll just say that uh, with modern uh, technology, the tracking, and that's what that's what he's referring to, is how well the guitar you're playing is is being tracked and it used to do, be done i believe with analog pickups that were converted and now they have other pickups that um do this much better and they're designed for guitar synth for midi especially and so that problem is i think much less so these days next question roscoe jones in madison indiana says should a mixer walk around the room to hear how it sounds outside of the booth go ahead jeff Absolutely, yes. And that's the great thing of having a tablet remote control is you can keep uh, adjusting the mix as you're wandering around the room, especially if the booth is enclosed in some way. Uh, it is not the same acoustic environment as the audience has. Good morning. Yeah, I was doing an event uh, with a band on stage. Actually, the band was over in one side. They were more like a pit band. And this was during rehearsals. And the sound, the, the bass was just blasting me out as I was sitting at the mixer. So I asked the bass player to turn it down. He said, if I turn this down anymore, I'm not going to be able to hear it. And then I walked around the room and the bass was very light. So um, where the mixer was, was in a location in the room where all the bass was building up artificially. So it sounded strong to me. And not only did it sound funny, but it really changed the way I had to think about my mix. So yes, absolutely. Get up and walk around the room, both before the audience comes in and during the show, because the, all those bodies will change the way the room sounds. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I think Marty is spot on because not all rooms are created equal. Some are different than others. And if you don't understand the characteristics, like he said, bass may build up in certain areas and cause problems for the mix. You may have to find a uh, medium area that makes sense. But the best instrument you have are your ears. Use your ears. Best thing you got. Go, Jesse. A really fun way to test this in the micro is to play a single, uh, a single tone signal out of your stereo speakers at home, cover one ear and kind of move around a little bit and you will hear where those two signals phase and drop out. And even in that very simple test, you can see the importance of moving around. Yeah, and this is where it's, it's a really good argument for why you want opening acts, why you want, um, want pre-shows, why you want all these things that use your system is so that you can see what's happening once all the people are in. I think there was a good point earlier about once a lot of people come in, um, you, uh, <laughs> we sometimes refer to as water bags. Once you have a lot of water bags in there, you don't know what, you, you know, it's, it's going to be a lot different than what it was before. And, and so the, um, uh, it, it really persuading a client to go into a pre-show and to have something there really helps a lot to make that, make that better um, so that you can tune things on the stuff that's less important and then be ready for the stuff that is. Uh, next question. 
Mark Giuliani in Washington, D.C. We're going to start video streaming a radio show called Tipping the Scales of Justice. The host will be in the air studio. The guests will come in over Zoom. Is Unity Intercom a good tool for comms? And what hardware do I need to get started? Go ahead, Mitchell. I would recommend for a broadcast environment, particularly since you may use it for other things other than just your uh, your live TV show, take a look at the new Telos uh, IP-based uh, intercom system. Yeah, I mean, it just depends on what, what kind of money you have. So the Telos will be a little bit more expensive than Unity, but less expensive than ClearCom. Um, so you just have to decide. What's nice about the Telos is that it has hardware. We're going to bring those guys in and have them talk to us uh, this spring. Um, but the... Um, all you need is a Mac Mini to act as a server. You could do a cert. They have a, there's a cloud version of of Unity that you could theoretically use, but what we do is use a Mac Mini to administer that. Um, and you you might only need a handful of of licenses, and then you just buy those licenses up. But the Mac Mini is is really the the only piece of hardware that that you need to get started. And then you can be people are going to be installing it. You just have to decide how many licenses you want. Last question for the first hour. Michael, or maybe Michelle Patriot, can't really tell. Poland, I use Reaper and NDI for a live mixing audio web broadcast, which is almost always interview or debate. Anyone try it? Do you know any alternatives to it with only sound cards, uh, Focusrite he mentions, and PC windows, or how to my live mixer, which is a DAW, digital audio workstation? Good, Jeff. The first uh, software mixer comes to mind is the Harrison Mixbus software, which is uh, around the same price as Reaper. Yeah, yeah, I think that um, I would probably take a look at Mixbus. It would be the first thing that I would look at. It's great. All right, we've got a lot of brainstorming. <laughs> There's a lot of questions or a lot of comments that are there. If you're one of the panelists, so we're going to be talking about brainstorming for audio and what, what do we want to cover over the next quarter, over the next year, um, those types of things. And so if you, if you are a panelist and you have a couple things you want to say before we jump into the comments from the producers, go ahead and raise your hand right now. Um, you know, really what we're, this is a, a wide range. We're, we're covering uh, audio in, you know, everything from recording to post to, you know, effects to processing to the tools that we want to use. Those are all the things that are fair game. Also think about what people you'd like to bring in that we might be able to reach out to and say, okay, it'd be really good to have this person come in and talk about something. So think about those things as well. Go ahead, Jesse. Can't hear you, Jesse. I'm sorry, I thought the intro would go longer. Um, one of the things that I would love to see a second hour and possibly multiple second hours on is spectral frequency analysis. I just started getting into that and what it revealed about audio signal chains. Uh, just like uh, it, it was gobsmacking. Um, suggestions for guests we could have on the second hour. Um, I've, I've worked with a fellow John Polito at Audio Mechanics in Burbank. Uh, he does audio restoration for old films and audio repair for new new media. I think that could be a very, very interesting second hour. That'd be huge. Love that. Uh, Mitchell? I'd be interested in the physical aspects, how your ears work. Um, how do you deal with getting older? How do you deal with having tinnitus? How do you work with the Fletcher, Munson curve? All of those things. I think that sort of starts at computer one. So maybe it'd be a good uh, baseline to have. Go ahead, Bill. Um, I'm interested in how 32-bit float as it rolls out across the audio market changes how mixers have to think about gain staging and things like that. Uh, it's going to change things, and I just wondered how fast it's rolling out and what people think. Good, Courtney. I'd like to see uh, troubleshooting be the topic, you know, to, to troubleshoot audio problems, where they're coming from, how they're getting in, how to, how to eliminate them, et cetera. That's great, Sky. And as we're doing these brainstorming sessions, what I'm recognizing is I love that 
I'm getting introduced to the concept, but if we could have an associative lab attached right behind it or right next to it in, in association with the, the expert, uh, that is what I'm, I'm wanting to get my hands dirty. I want to roll up my sleeves. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the general model that we're looking at for a lot of things, and you won't see it happen in the first quarter very much, but we're going to be slowly ramping this up is there is a, there's like a four part piece that we're kind of thinking about right now. The first part is we might make a little video that we put on the on the YouTube channel, a short video that gives you an introduction to a concept that we're going to talk about in a second hour. So this is what's coming up. It, it won't we won't necessarily do them for this this person's coming in to talk, but if we're talking about let's say balanced audio, there might be a little 2 or 3 minute video on how balanced audio works and say we're, we'll answer more of your questions and so on and so forth at the at you know in the second hour. Do the second hour and then potentially a week or two later. And the reason we're lo not looking at doing it right after the show is that um, uh, the majority, the vast majority, about 90% of our listeners are time shifting. So basically they're watching this show later. Um, so we don't want to necessarily do the lab right after the, the second hour. We want to do it the week after the second hour. And then the other thing that we're starting to think about is classes. So the second hour, there's a lab that might be an hour or two that we're going to all kind of talk about something and work through something. But then we go, okay, now we're really going to sit down for the people, for the handful of people that are serious. They want to, they have that piece of hardware, they have the software, whatever, they'll chip in some money. And that person's really going to build a curriculum for a 10 week course or a three week course, or a, even a four hour course on how to use that product. And that means that some of our members are you know, um, chipping in and helping to pay for other members to show them how to do stuff. <laughs> so, so, so the, uh, so that's kind of the four part series there. After that, there's, you know, integrated training where we actually do events and have people work on them, but that's probably later in the year. So those are, you know, so th it's going to take a little time for us to get that pattern going like everything else we do. Um, but, but I think that, um, you're going to start seeing us try to experiment with that. You might only see one of those a month and then one of those a week and then a couple a week, you know, over time. But to your point, I think that the, we want to follow up with labs on, on a select number of these. Not everything we do will do that, but a select number of them um, would be really useful that way. Uh, next, next question. Juancy Robles in Mexico City, Mexico says, while, audio, while Office Hours audio pipeline is being upgraded to 5.1, I second hour in mixing in surround 5.1, the logic and Pro Tools approaches. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, I think uh, we should stop at 5.1 and go to full uh, spatial audio, immersive audio. Um, and also the the big problem here uh, as you deal with this expanding systems is getting monitoring. If you're trying to monitor in actual speaker systems, physically getting the speakers in your room and a monitor controller that can control six, eight, 12 speakers and run that volume up and down is really difficult. Yeah, and I think that we do to this point. We absolutely, we're, you know, we're, we're going to do five one. We're going to talk about um, Atmos. We're going to talk a lot about a lot about other things throughout the year. And one of the things that, um, and, and we're doing a lot. I mean, I do a lot of research in five one and Atmos, <laughs> so, so that's a lot of my time is spent thinking about those things and working out pipelines to do it remotely, to do it on 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 site. Um, the one of the things that that we want to do is think about how do we piece this out. This is for our our council to think about how do we piece it out because what do we want to talk about first we probably want some overviews of how these things work then we want more vertical overviews then we want maybe to bring some people in to talk about it maybe and then 
We want to, you know, so there's a lot of steps that we want to think about. How do we set up our speakers? A whole second hour on just setting up your speakers would probably be useful. Um, so a lot of these things are um, breaking those out. There's probably enough to do something once a month for the year, <laughs> you know, to to slowly get us up to speed on on what that looks like. And then labs and then other things like that. One of the big exciting things about doing 5.1 and why we're going to be doing it um, pretty soon is that we want to be able to do it every day so we get used to it. But what we're really getting good at is the ability to do a class. And so, you know, classes in 5.1 where we can talk about 5. This is the first time we've ever had a class like that where we can talk about 5.1 uh, and actually have you hear it. So if you're if you're in a 5.1 system, we can actually show you what that means. And eventually, if you're in an Atmos system, we can show you what that means. You know, and so we can do, you know, so over this year, we hope to be able to do both 5.1 and, and in many other versions of this. And if you have a system that can hear it, we want to be able to deliver it to you. Um, you know, so imagine being able to pick up your iPhone, put it on your headphones, and when we have something circling around you, you can actually hear it circling around you um, in that in that process. And so um, that's going to change the way. I don't know of anybody else that's doing five one or or at Atmos training online, even Dolby that is in Atmos, you know, in Atmos or 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 five dot one. So that's that's what we're kind of really trying to figure out. Um, next question. It comes from one F Jeff Keithley, and I'm tempted to read it in sarcasm, but I'm going to read it straight. In the end, does audio even matter as much as some people think, or do we just keep bringing up those audio guys along out of habit? <laughs> Go ahead, Andy. Yes. And <laughs> Jeff, <laughs> if you are doing one of your broadcasts I and little, you. I sense a little sarcasm there. Yeah. <laughs> a little? I, I, I hope. I hope. I hope. Yeah. So, uh, no, I'm just, I just want to put this in practical terms here. So, Jeff, if you are doing one of your broadcasts and you lose audio, you have a silent movie. If you, if you only lose video, you now have radio. Which would you prefer? Can go, Marty. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> go ahead, Jesse. I, I would like to see the opposite side of this coin. And um, uh, how do we get more audio guys odd to audio folks odd to uh, people who are broadcasting now? Because nothing will get me to tune out quicker than a laptop microphone six feet away from the speaker on their hour long panel. I won't even listen to a call in anymore. Like I'm just done. Like I won't play anymore. If if you put a radio show on and you put someone on a phone, I'm done. Like I'm just like, there's no reason for that anymore. We don't need to do that. And I won't I won't I won't listen to it. <laughs> Go ahead, Sky. Well, if if it's a service that you're providing or being paid to do, I would I would at this time technology is moving quickly, but I think you need something to specialize in that component of your experience that you're providing the service you're providing and it and audio is is one of those things that's very unique i mean can the talent also put their makeup on yes and sometimes they have to but if you bring in a makeup person that allows the talent to not worry about what they look like and that's that's pretty critical so audio i would think is a critical thing and somebody should be thinking about it good courtney and that's one thing we really haven't dealt with here uh, is uh, onset respect, and it might be a good topic for a second hour, as as to how audio has always been the uh, unwanted stepson. You know, the people that tend to ignore the audio mixer on the set and the social standing. It's everybody think, thinks about the the camera and where the camera. Everything's done for the visual aspects and how the uh, you know audio gets no respect. You know what I mean? You know. <laughs> Go ahead, Jeff. 
it's like the saying, nobody likes a lawyer until they need one. <clears throat> audio is one of those things. I mean, there's the extra credit stuff like spatial audio and <clears throat> Dolby Atmos, but that's great. But there's a baseline, and I don't know if anyone knows the physiological reason, but our brains are way more forgiving to problems with video um, thankfully for me, than they are with audio. And even subconsciously, you know, you will want to tune out or get out of that situation. If it's bad, choppy, or really bad quality audio, again, we're, we're more forgiving with similar problems in video. Yeah, 100%. I think that in most shows, I think sports is one exception that we don't need to hear as much of the audio there because we don't really hear a lot of the gnat sounds from from sports. I mean, we hear some of it and it's being added in there, but it, it's probably a little less at times. It definitely adds a lot to it, but it's not as important as the commentators are uh, oftentimes. Um, the uh, But outside of that, almost everything, I would say audio is probably 80% of the show. Go ahead, Marty. Talk to someone who has hearing loss. And ask them how, how important, you know, their hearing audio is. Next question. Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach is up next. He says, a focus on voiceover. Bring in a few guests, cover the industry, new tech hardware and software, performance issues around live sessions with video, and where it fits in the pre- and post-production of event production. Go ahead, Jesse. Um, uh, as much as voiceover, I think it would be very interesting to have voice actors on, on a program like this. So many of their interviews devolve into, you know, can you have SpongeBob be at the Hindenburg crash or something like that, uh, to, to get a more technical view into the world of voice acting would be fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Mitchell. Yeah, I'm with Jesse on that. I think acting is good. Uh, we did one once before. It was fascinating to have those experts come in. And I don't think we need to concentrate so much on the people that we already know that are on our panel that are voiceover talent. I think we need to find other people that have something to say about it. There you go, Bill. We've actually done two. We I did one early in the probably the first three or four months of office hours. Then we had the bigger panel recently. Everybody seems to really enjoy them. So I think the more we do of that, people seem really interested in it. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Courtney. Uh, yeah, I'd like to see that. Of course, I, one thing we haven't focused on in voiceover maybe is ADR uh, for movies and television where they bring in, uh, because there was a sound problem, they bring in the voice actors and have them reenact their lines on stage and how they have to match perspective, that kind of thing. Because uh, it's a, it's a craft into itself. Absolutely. Jeff? And I'll request or suggest that uh, when we do have some of those great guests, we skip the generic default question, which is, tell us how you got started. Every interview they've done, they've given the how we got started. So I'd get to the kind of current day nitty gritty yeah. stuff that we want. I think sometimes though it does give you context, <laughs> like where they came from to do that. Because I think a lot of people, especially when they look at voiceover talent, the reason they're asking how did you get started is because they're trying to figure out how they can get started. <laughs> so see to see how it how it all started uh, for them, uh, Marty. Yeah, that would be an interesting lab or class to bring in a voice acting coach to do something after That'd be hours. Great. Yeah, it'd be great to have a handful of people, you know, go up and do their best. You know, we all get the same thing to read and we all read it. I wouldn't do it during the second hour, but having something, maybe, I mean, a couple of people that might be interested in doing a second hour in the second hour, have a person go through three or four people reading the same thing and give them feedback that, I mean, a lot of people would learn a lot from that. So it's, it's a really good idea. Next question. Next one comes from Jeff Keithley again. He's brave. Virtualizing audio mixers, Calrec, Telos, and Lavo. Uh, go ahead, Andrew. Yeah, I think this is an interesting topic, and I think I was trying to think of a way we could show that. And one way is first, you have to really understand signal flow, 
in an analog console and mm-hmm. then you can look at a digital console. But uh, the thing with digital consoles is, is when I get on a new one that I haven't worked with before, it's just learning where they put things. <laughs> what well, is yeah, their so architecture? That, yeah, I think that understanding, to your point, um, understanding the architecture of mixers is probably a second hour that wants to be done. I think we've talked about it a little bit in the past, but I think it'd be really good to talk about, you know, what are DCAs and what are buses and what are the, what's gain and versus, you know, the faders and all those things, post and pre, pre-fader, um, EQ, um, all the other things, like tours of those things would be good. And I think that those also translate into labs, you know, really nicely, you know, whether it's an X32 or a QL1 or a Calrec, you know, um, mixer, I think those things would be really fun labs that we could probably do as well. Jeff? Yeah, in addition to that, the physical interface so that we're not trying to mix with a mouse. You know, how can we interface uh, yeah. physical mixers, iPad controls, uh, MIDI faders to get that all f- working with a virtual mixer, whether that's locally or across the internet. Good, Marty. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful idea. You know, there are the basics of, of audio mixing and processing that are built into every mixer. Uh, that's a good foundation. You know, you can work with any mixer if you understand the basics. Um, but then every manufacturer takes a slightly different turn and takes a puts a different flavor on interface, you know, human interfaces, visual interfaces, and even feature sets like busing. You know, there's mix busing, there's flex busing, there's spill busing, there's, you yep. know, all kinds of different twists that different manufacturers offer in the way of features. And it would be interesting to explore those differences. Absolutely. Uh, next question. Ronnie Hoffsey in Tromsø, Norway says, difference between live audio out in the room and mixing for live stream. What do you think of with good practical examples on skills and equipment? I go to Andy again for the second hour. Like what, what subjects would you want to cover? Yeah. And in fact, we've kind of just started this, this whole thing when we were looking at mix minus, for example. Um, so the interesting way is how we would do this, but the, 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 what comes to mind is this, is that when you're mixing in a room, it starts with your PA system because the PA system will greatly affect how it sounds on your stream and, and, and all of that. So that it really has to start with that. And tuning the room because the room so, actually becomes your monitor system yeah, so, for so everything a, else and headphones. So as a second hour, I mean, I think that there's, there's a couple of second hours there. There's the, yeah. obviously the PA system with an Omni mic, just so you can hear what's in there, that, which still isn't accurate. It's not your ears, but it could be something that you could hear. Um, there is, you know, how do you ring out the room? How do you tune the room? Those are all like, those are all things that I think are little mysteries for a lot of people that are, and a lot of audio engineers, you know, do that. So those are, those are some solid. Yeah. The workflow in that is really important and that we could teach that is, you know, where do you start and wh- and how do you get there is yeah. really important because those steps are critical. Yeah. There's probably yeah. a second hour on just prepping, preparing a room for an event could be a second hour of just what are the steps that you're doing everything from your pre-pro to your, um, you know, to when you load in, to the what you're measuring, to what you're, you know, getting ready to do. That'd be really interesting. Yeah, go ahead, Jesse. 
The most common request that we get from the bands that we're working with is um, we want to play for our fans live and at the same time play for our fans internationally on a stream. And there's there's just there's infinity questions that go along with that. And we're, you know, sketching out ideas on on like, can we build an isolation booth that will simulate the the experience of the, the user? internationally but have it in the same room as the the live band performing that's being mixed for the room that they're in to do the mix in the iso booth mm -hmm. it's just so it, it unfolds into infinity immediately yeah yeah uh <laughs> and, and whether we should have anyway it's a long story uh, next question next question comes to us from jeff cohen in miami beach he says a focus on audio plugins eq noise reduction deessers limiters and so forth recommendations live versus post-production issues compare and contrast bundles versus a la carte perhaps some pre-produced demos and blind a b test examples maybe live voting go ahead jeff i think this needs to begin with the basic understanding of a particular class you know equalizers or dynamics processors and do you continue in that same second hour when you're working on on you've figured out what a compressor is and explained it then do you then go into why i choose this particular compressor what is the difference between these popular compressors um, what are the applications of it? Or do we kind of explain all the processors in one second hour and then wait for another few weeks and then go into why we choose? So it kind of need a direction as to how we want to head down that. Uh, again, whether it's sort of all basic or focused on one particular uh, effects processor. Right, Mitchell? Yeah, I agree. I think there's so much there. That's a very deep subject that you'd have to split it up, uh, maybe by company. For example, Waves, um, they could fill a whole second hour very easily. I know Jalad Karen over at Waves, the CEO and the co-founder. I could probably send a note out to him if we want to. Good, Courtney? Yeah, one good second hour would be on all these plugins, an order of insertion, because it's an audio chain and it makes a difference what comes before what in the chain and how it sounds different if the de-esser is put in front of the noise reduction or the noise reduction at the end or the limiter, et cetera. And uh, so basically outlining the different plugins and where they're best inserted into the chain. Yeah, I think we talked about a little bit doing a basic second hour on voice processing, you know, for podcasts or for shows like this and just what do most people dig into and, and do there, Jeff? Yeah, I know for me, this was one of the challenging things to learn <clears throat> going into voiceover um, and probably cursed by having a very deep technical background. You know, uh, other voice actors uh, who don't care at all about the tech, they want someone to just set it up for them and then they will never touch it. They don't care. It's, it's you know, went from okay to good, uh, good or great. Uh, having a technical background we obsess over all the differences and the switches and knobs and, and, you know, there's always something newer and, and better. And is that one going to be better or make my workflow faster? So that's uh there's, a, there's just a ton there. Hey, go ahead, Marty. Yeah, this is a really deep topic. That could be an entire semester of classes. Um, to do a second hour would be highly targeted and, and a really good idea. Uh, you just have to choose the topic because application is, you know, really important and can change how you do things and why you do things, whether it be for voiceover, for conference, for live, for uh, streaming, for in-room. It, it all changes things. And, and so, I think, again, that the, the real opportunity here is to do potentially a second hour that covers some of it. 
and then look at labs and then even look at some of the some of the folks here doing a class you know that like we're going to do this for the next six weeks or 10 weeks and everyone's again going to chip some money in so that that person can really dedicate time to it and uh, make that happen and so we'll see how that looks uh, in the future jesse uh, the importance of audio chains was mentioned. Uh, this could be a blind spot. If there's any audio editing software that works uh, as a nonlinear node system instead of that traditional ladder of, of effects, that would be very, very interesting to see what's being done in that area. I've only seen a handful. I'm a big proponent of that. I think that we should get rid of all of the, like I, I, as a nodal compositor, I look at audio mixing as audio compositing. And I really just want a nodal a nodal interface and the only nodal interfaces that I've really seen are things like the 806, you know, the BSS 806 and, and it's just very limited in what it can do, but it's it, those types of solutions. I think um, there's a potentially a huge future in those. And I don't think we're, if, if, if people know of a mixer that does that, let me know because every time I go to IBC or NAB, that's the number one thing I'm looking for. <laughs> it's a nodal mixer. So not a mixer, but in a DAW studio one has wanna, a, has a yeah. type of system like that. I don't want a DO, I don't want a DAW. I, I want a just a nodal mixer. I got inputs, I got outputs, I've got and then I just add add the nodes to what I'm doing. And that's all it's just a big processor. And then I can add interfaces and so on and so to it and say this interface controls this attribute. And it can be that interface can control any attribute. Um, so you could build it up as a standard mixer with a standard thing, but I haven't seen anybody do that. So yeah, if, if someone sees that, we'll, we'll put them on. I've tried to do that with uh, symmetrics processes, which is an open. Yeah. I have. Uh, I, open I've owned a UI. bunch of this. Yeah, and you can do you can program them and and do custom interfaces and do yeah. just about anything. But the, the the problem I ran into was designing an interface that included all of the traditional processing EQs, compressors on every channel. Yeah. Uh, it adds up really quickly and uses up a lot of processing resources yeah so if, if, if people know of any anybody that's really going down that path let us know i mean this again symmetrics does it to some degree and as does the bss 806 um, but they're not really solving the full problem it'd be really interesting to see what happens and now a lot of the processes are really powerful so it'd be really interesting uh next question next question comes in from nigel DeSalle in austin texas uh dante and x32 how to get the best from the combination i go to andy yeah um I think uh, this is an interesting question and an interesting topic. You have to think about Dante, teach Dante yeah. and how it works. And then you can apply it to almost any mixer. And I, I could see this very easily uh, being the intro to this would be we, we show Dante as a matrix and how to leverage it for your system. And then we go into each individual mixer. Maybe that's in the lab or something. So we can look at Behringer. We can look at Allen and Eve. We can look at a Yamaha. Um, and maybe that's a good way to approach this subject. Go ahead, Jeff. A lot of the uh, part of the confusion that comes in here is you have a routing matrix in Dante and you have a very powerful and confusing routing matrix in the X32. But that is available in software. So that's an easy thing to screen share. So as we go into the second hour explaining this, it's these these particular tools are great things for sharing. Uh, and then, you know, obviously we need a camera on top of uh, an X32 physical interface as an additional input. That's funny. I realized I was thinking about that. I was like, oh, and then we'll show the interface. And I was like, I don't, I have a lot of X32s. I just don't have any with any sliders. <laughs> they're all, they're all, I buy all racks. And so, uh, so those are, it's a really interesting uh, puzzle there. But I, I do think that 
uh, to your point, and the two that come before this is, is another session on Dante and a session specifically on the X32 and how it works and what the different attributes are. And then you get into this one. Uh, next question. Jeff Keithley's back. And this time he says, invite Alex from ProtoStream back for an update on mixing audio remotely. Yeah, 100%. We should definitely bring him back. It'd be great. Next question. Matt Cool in Montreal, Quebec, Canada says, I'd love to see a discussion around recording a live band with miking technique, monitoring the DAW setup, studio etiquette, and so forth. Yeah, go, Jesse. I think uh, miking instruments and vocals could be a once a month lab topic from now till the end of time. There's just so much to cover, and that information is so valuable. Yeah, Jeff. Yeah, this is hard to uh, hard to fit into one hour and getting all of the people there ahead of time. So getting a band and then so yeah, like like Jesse said, this is this is many hours because just setting up the mics on a drum set can take a, a fair amount of time. So is that set up ahead of time before we land in the second hour and we're just showing through that? Uh, that's that's some of the things we need to hash out. Good morning. Yeah, every single instrument could take more than an hour to explore. It's fascinating. Between you know, the first two would be drums and and grand piano. Yeah, the yeah, <laughs> that would take you all the whole time. Yeah, go ahead, um, Courtney. Yeah, an additional topic would be IEMs versus monitor wedges and how they affect your recording. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that a whole thing on we we kind of got into this thing with mix minus where we started talking about stage mixes, and I think that stage mixes really just want to be their own. Um, you know, the in-ear monitor mix versus wedges is its own second hour um, that's that's there as opposed to trying to fit it into a mix minus discussion. So I think that um, getting into those and talking about the different devices and so on and so forth would be great. Um, I am trying to find some space. Uh, I, I have some opportunities both in, in the building that I have here to, we're going to do some small mixes. And I think that there'll be a chance to do some labs in that area and then figure out what percolates into a second hour as well. Um, we have, uh, we've wired the, the pit, you know, the infamous pit, if you watch light and magic, um, it's below, it's right below our server room. It turns out, and we didn't realize that it was so close. We thought, oh, it was somewhere in the building. Then we realized it's right above it. It's right below us. And it's a floated room and it's not very big. Um, but, uh, the guitarist for a band in the nineties called, uh, well, it's still a current band stroke nine is, is in that, in that room. So, so, uh, we've talked to John about, we've been using it for Michael Krasny's show and now we've wired, we have Dante and control networks that are already in that room. And, uh, we just pulled a, a fiber into the room. So we've got 12 strands of fiber that are, that are in the room now. So we can put together cameras and all kinds of other things. So we're very close to starting to do tests. And I think that this will help us, you know, when we start miking things and putting things together. What we may do, because we really own this, I mean, not own it, but we own the space when we were using it, um, put up cameras and let you watch, you know, Jeremy or other people miking everything and working through it and listening to comms as people are talking about it and so on and so forth as we get ready for a, a 5.1 show. We're going to also be experimenting with sending that to LA to have it um, mixed in a theater, <laughs> you know, so, and then out, you know, so, so that we, um, and so we'll be, you know, there'll be a lot in that area that we're going to be working on. Um, next question. Kenneth Jones in Seattle, Washington is up next, teaching the next generation and learning from them why we do what we do. Good sky. What comes to mind is uh, the need in the houses of worship. And again, the, the challenges has been discussed, the in-house versus the exterior uh, live feed out and onto the, the, the internet. Also, I'm thinking of uh, 
Dave Paskin has a lot of experience at this. And then Marty, I think you also have been doing a lot of seeing this. Uh, I'd, I'd be curious, where do you see the young, younger minds coming into this uh, need? And then also John on the Saturday for the education. But what does the next generation expect? What do they think they want? What is their, their audio needs both now and a year from now? Go, Jeff. And so much of what teaching is is hard for experts is that we don't think about why we do something because it is so ingrained and instinctual after so much experience. It's like, why did you grab that uh, mid EQ knob and make a 3 dB boost? You know, we it it's running through that, and that's what's great about these labs is breaking things back down to basics. And here's what the functions do, but also, why did we do that? Next question. Next one comes to us from Scott Mueller in Germantown, New York. Focus on becoming a better production audio engineer versus a live sound engineer. Good, Courtney. Well, they are two completely different uh, jobs, and they, there's very little overlap between the two other than the fact that you're both dealing with sound. Microphones are different. Uh, the goal of what you're trying to record is different, etc. So comparing the two might be good. Uh, you could do one hour on the production audio engineering and then one hour on live sound engineering and you know maybe half hour on how they don't overlap. <laughs> Go ahead, Andrew. Yeah, and I think maybe part of this discussion could also just be gathering a bunch of us audio guys here as a roundtable and talk about how we got from one discipline to another. You know, in my case, I started in theater and also live music. <clears throat> and then I had a mentor who did broadcast sound. So, you know, hearing those stories, I think, from other uh, audio guys uh, and gals uh, would be really helpful maybe to drive this discussion. Good morning. Yeah, to, to, to both of those points, um, you know, live sound for music, live sound for theater, um, recording engineering, you know, uh, I think that production engineering if you for broadcast is more related to recording than to live sound. And it's a completely different goal. It's a completely different, well, similar process. We're using a lot of the same tools, although not necessarily. Sometimes we're using a different kind of mixer that's purpose-built for, for an application. So, yeah, that's a really great topic. Next question. Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach up next with The Modern DJ, perhaps a panel of high-tech DJs that do live shows and or clubs, the modern setup, hardware, software, using physical control vinyl on turntables versus DJ mixing boards, and live demos. Go, Jeff. Yeah, I don't know how much overlap there is in terms of real-world uh, application to the folks uh, on the panel or listening, but uh, as someone who a million years ago DJed live events with records and a mixer, basic mixer, uh, what's going on now is just, uh, and especially the tech behind it, is just fascinating. And, and, and there are, of course, lots of quote-unquote DJs now that just 
basically have a, a, a playlist and they're knob twisters, you know, they're, they're twisting, you know, EQ knobs basically, but you have folks that are using these, um, real vinyl, but they're not records. They're just control signal to the, uh, software like Serato and, and those records are, or vinyl, I should call it, are controlling what the computer is doing. And it's just fascinating. Scratch Bastid is, is one that's just amazing, does amazing live events. And I think it'd be an interesting discussion at least. Yeah. I think that really, I mean, I, years ago, years ago, I first started as a rave jock and then was a <laughs> move to weddings because weddings make more money, <laughs> made more money at the time. Um, and, um, but the, uh, I think that the, the, when I look at the technology now, I mean, now that you can, you can extract, I think Serato and a couple of the other ones will extract the vocals right out of the, or the drums right out of a, of a track that's sitting on your drive. And so that you can do all the things that we used to do where we wanted to do submixes and do all kinds of extra samples. And, and now that that can all be done. And I think looking at what the state of the art of that is, it would be, would be really interesting. Absolutely. Next question. Tom Ferguson, no, I'm sorry, Bob Sturdivant in San Antonio says, possible discussion of human versus computer versus AI voiceovers and if or when AI might replace the human. Is it a career someone should pursue or other ways they might use AI? Go ahead, Courtney. This is a rapidly shifting environment here in AI, and and that would be a good topic for how AI is used in, for example, in um, and uh, voice over or rather uh, ADR for re uh, voice replacement if you don't have an actor to do the ADR to replace lines that were damaged etc and using a deep fake voice of that actor trained on that actor to replace the voice so how it's used in production AI is used in production and how to in incorporate it into the production pipeline would be interesting you got Mitchell I agree with uh, Courtney. I think that makes sense. Uh, uh, trying to play off of the sensationalism of it's going to replace a lot of voiceover people doesn't really serve anybody. I think it's more of how does it supplement and how does it make it better? Uh, go ahead, uh, Jeff. I'll just add two things that it, first of all, has already replaced, you know, folks for certain applications. Uh, again, I think it was fascinating to hear Alex's candid perspective that for certain things, uh, it's preferable for him to listen to things um, with a computer-generated voice because it makes it more consistent. So, I mean, I'll let Alex talk, but he can go through it quicker than trying to track a, a human voice. Um, and, and again, it will continue continuously replace more and more folks for for the right applications and uh, but also there will still be room hopefully for for the human role also yeah i think that definitely figuring out where where those things make sense you know where the you know where does it make sense to have uh, a computer do do this work where does it make sense to have a human because it's not either or in any way shape or form there's definitely lots of places where you want a human being to do it and there's lots of places that you might want a computer to do it um so so i think it'll be really interesting to see uh, you know, that's going to be a big discussion for us overall for all of this year and next next question Tom Ferguson, Phoenix, Arizona. I'd love an in-depth second hours about Dante products and integration, starter kit to extended use. If you make an investment, what are the possibilities? Good, Tom. You need to start at the novice level. I mean, I need the novice level yeah. and then move from there because this could be a multi-show thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think that this is also where um, it lends itself towards a lab to kind of play with things and show people things and have people grab onto stuff. And I don't even know if we need to do the classes here because Audinate does 
so many good ones <laughs> that, that we might be able to, but we, what we could do that I think would be really interesting is for the companies that are doing these classes, one of the things I was just thinking about while, while I was reading your, your question was we could gang up on the, on the trainings and all do them together so that we're all, we could all then have a lap or discussion afterwards and after hours. So all go to the Audinate and then maybe even see if Audinate will come afterwards to our little like, hey, we've got 20 people that went to your class. Will you come and like a talk flash to us a mob? Bit? Like a flash mob. We've been talking about quality bombing. You know, we were talking about the fact that, you know, we could just suddenly show up with all the great cameras and everything else and and uh, ask lots of questions, but we could do it as a group. Um, I think that, that could make it more fun than us just individually doing it. And there's a lot of different sessions that we could do from Black Magic to Audinate to others. There you go, Jeff. Sounds like uh, Tom is volunteering himself as a guinea pig for a lab and his gear. And we yes. could work through his system and train him in the process. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, next question. Bob Sturdivant in San Antonio. Up next, discussion. Audio on a shoestring budget and limitations and the next steps up in equipment and or software as you build your studio. Yeah, go, Jeff. Uh, this is near and dear to my heart, working at a university for several decades. Uh, we have a shoestring budget if that so I'm used to doing audio on shoestring budgets i'd love to talk about this good marty yeah i see this all the time in my work with churches houses of worship or um, many of them small to medium-sized houses of worship are, are working on shoestring budgets or less um, and uh, <clears throat> that would be something really worthwhile exploring because there are you know 20 ways to skin a cat and how you do it can make a real difference in what the results are. Yeah, I think on the other side of that, I think we haven't, we kind of skipped over it, but I think just covering audio for a house of worship or video for house of worship in general would be really interesting because there's a lot of them that are not working on a shoestring, a shoestring budget. <laughs> and so like, I, you know, so there's a, there can be a lot of audio that's been added into it and seeing how they're approaching that and what the challenges are specifically to that could be really interesting across many faiths, just like just looking at the technical end of, of what that looks like. And I know that you've spent, Marty, a lot of time talking to people about that. So it'd be fun to do that and go at Sky. Well, and again, I'm happy to be following Marty because he has trained the real solution and that's the human, that's the wetware. And consequently, the I, I did have that exact same thing. We had, I got to introduce a, a member of my Sunday morning group to the term dog fooding because he had to stay home and he watched online and he all of a sudden came up to you on Monday email. He says, how can we make the quality better? How much money does it cost? And I thought it it's the human. And then we talk about money. So there's that. It's not a silver bullet. It's, it's silver buckshot. And it really is the human training. So that's a part of my input into that desperate need. Also a tiered system. I know Roscoe originally came out with a tiered system. If you wanted to come online, what was a step one, this budget? Step two, you know, that budget. It, it could be something that a second hour to your point there could be also just us building the tiers for different things. So it could be like a tiering, tiering cameras, tiering mics, tiering mixers, tiering, you know, like, so we all just kind of talk about what we think is the entry level. We all talk about what we think is middle of the road. And we all talk about what we think is the high end of, of that. And that could be really, and you could just do that, you know, once a quarter. Or well, and like the that. engineer that helped us initially was he gave me the great phrase. Here's the right now solution. And here's the right solution. Right. Yeah, good, Courtney. Uh, yeah, I think there's, because there's been such an increase in uh, uh, high quality e equipment that's available uh, for a much cheaper price, the democratization of high-end audio gear has happened. And um, 
how to cope with, you know, putting together a budget audio system and how to cope with the stigma of using something that seems to be low budget in a professional audio situation. I remember I used to have to cover up the realistic logos on my little playback speakers. Everyone thought, boy, those sound great. But I would never tell them they came from Radio Shack. There's a lot of stigma involved with using budget gear in a professional situation. Oh, yeah. that That's probably a whole second hour is just, is just the the gear that you use um, for show, you know, and, and and why you do it. Uh, that that'd be probably an interesting uh, second hour on its own. Go ahead, Jeff. I'll, I'll volunteer slash request. You know, our, our own Josh Kaufman could probably do a whole second hour, uh, not not necessarily the gear, but but on DIY solutions for everything else and he's done some amazing things that he's kind of trickled out and and showed us in terms of light panels and rigging and everything else you know with these diy solutions that he's come up with but the end result is beyond professional and and uh he could do that for audio let alone all the other topics absolutely Uh, next question Next one comes to us from Sky Gleason here on the panel, Seattle, Washington. Adobe Premiere now has an AI tool in their workflow to clean the audio. What second hour can we have to discuss AI in audio? I'd love to learn what the uh, um, AI's best practices are, needs, and values. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, we've already talked about plugins and uh, so how deep a subject that is. But I think this is a good point because it's a practical application of plugins in general. And I think this is a manageable second hour uh, subject. Yeah, good, Sky. Well, and I also want to learn what other tools are doing it other than Premiere. I was just introduced to it yesterday and we do have in our film some needs to clean it up. Well, I thought we were going to have to do it all in audio post. But now on my non-budget that I can through Premiere, which is our platform, send it up to their AI, clean it and bring it back down. I'm sure that Resolve's doing similar things. And there are other tools that I would have originally wanted an audio engineer to do, but now I can let them do the design work and do some other things for the creative process that maybe I don't have to, you know, spend that budget on, on, on Marty to get the clean audio. Good, Courtney. Yeah, and maybe it could be hosted by a chat GPT bot with a uh, mid-journey uh, avatar. <laughs> mid-journey could be drawing the diagrams that yeah. are generated by the chat GPT. And then chat, and then, yeah, exactly. <laughs> nobody, nobody will replace you, Courtney. Next question. Next one comes to us from uh, Matthias Utia in uh, Helsinki, Finland again. Setting up EQ for a person's mic and steps to improve live stream bus including effects, limiter, and so forth. Go ahead, Andrew. Yeah, this question brought to mind something I don't think we've touched on a lot here, which is ear training. Uh, and I think I think we need like a class, um, maybe we call it ear training for lighting technicians um, because or video people too. So I think that's important because we need to talk about the technical craft and aesthetic connection and how we use all of that to achieve good audio. Yeah, I think that, I think one of the things to be really interesting is to take someone's voice, let's take a couple different voices, open it up in an EQ, and then just move things around so people can hear what 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 we're talking about and where do we want to pull it up and where do we want to pull it down. And where do we, and, I, and I think we can actually do that pretty usefully in Zoom um, and we could figure this out, you know, how it goes out to the stream. Because if we use the, if we do the share inside of Zoom, you know, in the share audio in the advanced tab, we're getting a pretty clean signal. I mean, there's no reason why we can't be outputting that fairly effectively. And then we just need to send that signal to the stream as well. And I think that we could 
I think we could do something where you can really hear it. It's not, you know, uh, clamped down and, and we can really talk about a lot of details. I think that'd be super useful. And I think that that's, again, I, I think that there's a whole hour on equalization. There's a whole hour on compression. There's a whole hour on, you know, like those are like people really understanding how they work and when to use them and how to use them is our whole hours. Um, yeah, go ahead, Sky. The audio sommelier. Of, and, and that's where I thought this component in all of these different concepts of mm-hmm. what's, what's a good thing and what's a bad thing and the origin of it. So that, that I love that idea. Yeah. And go, Bill. It caused me to think about mic positioning. I think that by itself might be interesting for a second hour. I always notice I've been in voice booths for such a long time. And every time I reset up a voice booth and hang my mouth on my mic, I have to pay attention to where in the physical space of the voice booth it is because of standing waves and issues. Am I, you know, standing in front of the the glass or am I into a corner? And those will affect what the recorder actually records. So positioning mics in space might be a worthwhile topic. Yeah, Marty. Yeah, and you can't talk about EQing mics without talking about room acoustics. And we've talked about those in the past. We've had second hours on those, but I think that it never hurts to come back to them. <laughs> so there might be, uh, I mean, maybe there's something that's once a month that's just the basics. You know, like just we're going to go through one of these basics. And there's probably 12 of those we could think of pretty quickly that um, we're always going to cover once a month that we're going to just make sure that we're working through those. Um, to to make sure that we have that by the end of the year or within two years. We've covered all of those things. Uh, Next question. Our next one comes from Douglas Carmichael. Synthesis methods, subtractive, FM, wavetable, and so forth. And go ahead, uh, Courtney. We have done a couple of after hours on this. Carl did a great one on synthesis with demonstrations of analog synth. It could be a very deep subject, and it tends to be a little bit tedious and hard to hear the differences between the two. Uh, It's subjective to to a great deal. Uh, so maybe better as an after hours, uh, topic or seminar would be better there. Yeah, I think, and I think talking about synths more would be great. I've got a couple of guests that I want to try to bring on, um, that, uh, do a lot of both modular as well as other synthesizers. And I think it'd be a fun to have more of those. We've had a couple of great ones with Carl and with Nick. Um, so hopefully we'll, we'll be able to do more of those as well. Uh, next question. Uh, Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana says best learning resources, when to use mentors versus YouTube versus formal training. And what is a great learning environment for audio? Go Jesse. Um, in addition to that, I think, uh, uh, a second hour on finding mentors would be a really valuable second hour in audio and beyond. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, next question. Stefan Fisher back in Wurzburg says, how to start working with better and or bigger mixers, maybe an X32. What are the first steps and how to approach that kind of machine? Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, this starts from uh, the fundamentals of how a mixer works and how signal flow works. And once you can grok that, then you can step up to any mixer and just determine what are the controls that I'm looking for. And so they each have their idio idiosyncrasies but mixers are mixers are mixers whether they're virtual or analog or digital they're just a mixer next question scott Mueller in germantown uh, new york says solutions for watching movies in 2.0 stereo when so many films have blasting music and buried dialogue any solutions for people who don't have a center channel to adjust go ahead andrew uh, well, I think this touches on uh, how you do stereo, and a good stereo mix starts with a good mono mix, actually, and um, a good 
5.1 mix starts with a good stereo mix and so forth and so on until you get to Atmos. And so maybe there's a lab and or discussion there too. Thank you, Courtney. Yeah, this has become a problem so much so that soundbar manufacturers and television manufacturers are now building in special filters to accentuate the dialogue because people have a hard time hearing the dialogue amongst the 5.1 and the surround mixes and the stereo mixes if they're improperly tuned or in, uh, improperly decoded. So, um, yeah, it might be an interesting uh, thing to point out solutions that uh, to this problem for those that uh, have problems with hearing the dialogue because many directors suppress it. Yeah, I think, I think that'd be good. I know that my family leaves the captioning on all the time. You know, like it's just, it, and then it makes it hard to get people to want to go to movies because they can't understand what's going on. So it's, it's a, definitely something to pay attention to. Next question. Matthias Hutila is back with uh, from Helsinki, Finland with Headset Mike. Reviews, comparisons, cheap, budget, expensive. Yeah, I think this gets back into that whole like, you know, looking at different ranges for different products, you know, whether it's microphones or headsets or or speakers or whatever, and, and thinking and talking about what we would put into those those uh, piles. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, Tom uh, Ferguson has a tech tackle that, that we've been working on to give you the good, better, best scenario. It might be a good time to bring that in. Yeah. Uh, next question. Chris Clark in Tempe, Arizona, comes back uh, this time with how about kits and issues involved in sounding good and looking good from a hotel room? Go ahead, Jesse. I think it would also be interesting to see the panelists, uh, to see everybody be given the same size Pelican case and what you would put in it for looking and sounding great uh, on any remote job. Yeah. Now that's a challenge. There you go. Um, next question. Uh, Brooke uh, Hafner says for Zoom uh, Brody. meeting. Brody. Oh, Brody. I'm sorry. That was clicking over right as I was trying to read it. Uh, anyway, Brody asks for Zoom meeting managers, a second hour or series on improving Zoom audio, problem prevention, ear training and troubleshooting, sound check strategies, Zoom audio setting suggestions, and checklist mute options and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, really what we do to triage a remote panelist would probably be useful. I mean, when we're bringing someone in for a show, I think that we've talked about it in the past, but I think that just for audio, just really how we try to solve that, I think would be pretty useful, both for when you're in a situ situation, but also for bringing in a remote that may not know as many things that need to be done. Next question. Marty Adias here on the panel from Maryland says show automation for audio and how it can be interfaced to graphics, video, and so forth. Yeah, that's a great advanced topic. <laughs> you know, like that, that, you know, we talk about it. We've, you know, done things like tie the switcher, like for a surround sound mix where you're jumping from one 360 camera to another, you have to change the mix for every one of those. And so we figured out how to tie the switcher into the, into the scenes inside of the QL so that when you're changing cameras it literally changed the position of all the, everything as it relates to that and you know things that tie those things together would be really interesting go ahead Andrew. yeah no, no on the other end of it um you know like just using qlab in production yeah um you know things like that just tools like that um and uh when to use it and when not to use it too yeah. because there's a I've I've seen stuff overused and I'm like, oh, okay, you're gonna push that one button and do a hundred things. What happens if it breaks or you need to do something different in yeah, the moment? Absolutely. Uh, Marty. Yeah, in my Monday audio meeting, we've been talking, we started talking about um uh for smaller houses of worship <clears throat> who uh don't have trained volunteers, uh, they want to be able to utilize something like a stream deck 
to trigger a series of steps that does a whole bunch of things, you know, from changing PTZ camera position presets to um, muting and unmuting microphones to maybe even changing lighting and graphics and lower thirds and stuff like that. And it's, you know, it's possible. It's it's very possible to do and, and uh, you know, figuring out the best way to do it. And that is uh, uh, the most foolproof um, and easy for people to understand is, is the challenge. No, absolutely. Um, next question. Jesse Mills, San Francisco Bay Area. Are there methods to send a phone's mic audio to another phone wirelessly so the receiving phone cam is transmitting that remote phone's mic audio in an RTMP or SRT app? Thinking about a next-gen use case here. Right, go ahead, uh, Sky. Well, I think uh, Jesse and Brody should get together about that challenge of doing something remotely and and getting because this is becoming the tool of uh, a lot more people are using. So um, we, to workshop this into a solution would be great. Uh, go ahead, Jesse. This just made my brain uh, jump to another track, which is uh, a monthly update notes or newly released features on your phone, on uh, common hardware that we're all sharing or that people are using a lot, just to do an hour focused on what's new in the software and hardware that month. I also think that we can go the other direction. I'm just looking at this one where we do labs that we're going to lab something out and they percolate into a second hour. Like, hey, we did a lab. And we played with these ideas and we came up with this solution um, to, to make that actually happen. So I think we could go the other direction for some of those as well. So it's just figuring out how to, you know, how to tie all those together. Wow, that was a lot. We now have enough uh, ammo for a couple years. <laughs> so, so, so we'll still stop every quarter to see how we're doing and talk about what's working and not working. But, but I think that uh, we've got a lot of great ideas and how to structure kind of see what I'm really looking for is how do we structure a series of things, you know, over the year. So, you know, if we're going to do once a month, maybe we're going to talk about the basics. And so what are 12 things that do that? And we're going to have 12 different people come in and we're going to have 12 different, you know, um, vendors come in. Now we're almost done. <laughs> like we got, you know, we're, 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 we're closing in on filling up all of those spaces pretty quickly. And so that's what we're going to try to, um, you know, kind of keep on doing. But these, these brainstorming sessions are just key, you know, for us to, uh, figure this out and get the responses from everybody here really helps the the whole process. Tomorrow, of course, we'll be talking about video. So um, so Bill will be, be hosting there and we'll be talking, we'll be doing exactly what we did on the first three days, on the fourth day, and talk about uh, video. Of course, Friday, we're going to talk about logistics, um, all the logistics related to, to production. And Saturday, we're going to talk about education. So what do we want to do in all of these areas? And these are especially at the beginning of the year, but even throughout the year, these are really important uh, conversations. So hopefully if, you, if you're enjoying this one, as we think through those things, um, you'll jump in and give us your two cents um, over the next, uh, the next couple of days as we try to figure all of these things out. Uh, thanks to the producers for all the great ideas and great questions and, and great thoughts there. Okay, you know, it's just really, really great to have all of you here. There's a lot of people here today. <laughs> you know, I'm putting in a lot of both questions in the first hour, which is fantastic, as well as great suggestions in the second hour. Uh, thanks to the panelists. Of course, we can't do this without you. And it's really great to see such a big audio uh, team. I mean, our real goal with each one of these days is that you know the second hour is important. But what we really want to make sure of is, is that second hour is important, but that first hour means that you can come in and ask an audio question on Wednesday. And there's people here that really know what they're really know the answers that can give those back to you. And I think that that is a uh, um, something we, we're, we're trying to do for each of these days is really have these kind of verticals where there's the right people for that session 
are there. So we really appreciate all the all the audio experts that that came and joined us today. And um, and then thank thank you, of course, to the great team in the back end making all of this happen. Um, it's constantly evolving, constantly getting better, constantly breaking. And there's a great team both in you know the engineering side as well as the live activation side that just keeps making this happen every single day, seven days a week. Uh, it's just really amazing work. So thank you so much. A quick reminder that the Reader Workshop is at 3 p.m. Pacific time today. Um, 105,000 miles. We've got a 1K. we got 1K today um, and uh, 169,000 kilometers. And most importantly, uh, 951 million bananas for scale. Um, we think that that equates to approximately 300 million minions head to tail, um, just in case you're, you're wondering for, for that for a minion scale. Um, so uh, we, we think that somewhere in that, in that, in that ballpark, but we'll do some more research on that. And uh, now let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. There's a mid journey, you know, some minions, that different ones every single time, and maybe even graphics for bananas could do mid journey bananas. I don't even know what that would be, but it'd be like Darth Vader as a banana. Minions. John Bretto has a has a column for how many minions does it take to create? The question is, do they have two eyes or one eye? I, mean, I think the efficiency is stereo versus mono exactly. there's certain things that the, that the stereo minions can do that the that the single eyed minions can't do the mono the mono minions those are, that's what we like to call them mono minions stereo minions i i wonder if there's a, if there's a lot of classes in there between mono and stereo is minions a second hour yeah i think there's a second hour oh, there's a second hour okay. audio for minions Video for great minions. Yeah. Is it going to be minion fact or minion opinion? I think it's going to be minion fact. Nice. I think 